0: Am I going to be able to flip a page? (coughs) All right. Hello. Good morning. (laughs) Hi. Let's start here. I think you've heard this by now. But let's start here. God is love. Say it with me. God God is is love. Thank you. Just keep talking. Just okay. Like I'm here. Okay. Um, I was in graduate school for my master of social work when this clicked for me in a new way. I can't remember what we were talking about or how exactly this even came up, but I'll never forget what one peer said about the Bible. He said there are so many gray areas in the Bible. Areas where some believe one thing just as strongly as others believe something else. There's so many different interpretations, so much room for differing opinions, and we get stuck on that. And he said, for me, the one thing that isn't gray, the one thing that is absolutely, totally clear, the one thing we can all agree on, no matter our perspective, is love. And until we can get that part down, we really shouldn't get caught up in all the gray. What if we really tried this? Like all of us at the same time. What if we focused on love? On really loving well, the way God does it, which by the way, is unconditionally. Do you hear me? No conditions. None. What if we did that? Our lectionary readings today are all about what matters most to God. And so as followers of God, this is exactly the kind of stuff that should perk up our ears. In Leviticus, God says, be holy, and then gives examples of what being holy looks like, and then, at the end, sums it up with these words. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Centuries and centuries later, Jesus walks the earth as living love. And so it's not too surprising to us that when asked which of the commandments is the greatest, he cites love, loving God with all you have and loving neighbor as yourself. Jesus says that on these commandments hang everything all the law, all the prophets, all, 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 all of it, love. This was and is a big deal. Jesus was talking to a group of people whose lives depended on this firm foundation Yahweh had given them in the law. The law is what made them into a people set apart and their identity was wrapped up in that. There were literally hundreds of mitzvah or commandments that made up this law, hundreds upon hundreds, and Jesus said that every one of them could be summed up with love, meaning Jesus defined the law as love. Now, here's where it gets tricky. A lot of time has passed, and a lot of stuff has gone down in between. The Bible has been interpreted again and again and again throughout history. The interpretation has evolved as society has evolved. I like to think that as humankind comes to know God more, we also begin to see the Bible more clearly. So the interpretation has evolved, and it will continue to do so because the word of God is living and breathing. It is alive, and the mark of any living thing is always change. We are living in a very important time right now, a pivotal moment in history and and specifically in Christian history. We are being challenged to reconsider our ideas of holiness and love and what they really mean, what they really look like. Things are up for reinterpretation, and even though this can be scary, it's a good thing because we know that it means we are moving toward the kingdom of God on earth, not away. I need you to hear this clearly. I believe that many brave churches, unconditional love and acceptance of the LGBTQ community is reflecting this movement toward the kingdom of God. The problem is that many Christians are having a difficult time reconciling this progression with their understanding of what is right and what is wrong according to God and all they've ever been taught about God. I see this happening, and I get it. I was there. Like many of us here today, I grew up within a very specific theological framework that basically says this. The Bible is clear... And it's soul interpretation. And the Bible is truth. So you either believe the right way or no way. You are either in or you are out. Seeing as how out means an eternity apart from God in this paradigm, an eternity burning in hell, (laughs) most everyone who's born into this way of thinking decides to go with the former. No questions asked. Many of you know what I'm talking about all too well. When you are raised with this kind of outlook on life, when it's ingrained into your belief system, it becomes paramount not to rock the boat so that all you've ever known to be true doesn't crumble. And so it's very, very difficult to even entertain the thought that there could be other ways to see and experience God, that there could be other ways to read and interpret scripture. In this kind of framework, doubt is a sign of a faulted faith. Sometimes it even feels like sin just to wonder. Questioning is not encouraged. Evolution is a dirty word in more ways than one. What this means is that there are a whole lot of people whose very foundation for life is built on this particular set of biblical or Christian principles. So much so that even if a person isn't necessarily living a life of Christian devotion, many are protectors of this narrow way of understanding because you literally have to be in order to survive. If one toe is out of line, everything you know about God will come tumbling down. This is a terrifying thought. I say all this because I want to make sure it's understood how difficult it can be to evolve theologically specifically when it comes to Christianity as it relates to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender questioning, and queer community. If I could say anything to the people who are unable to engage in this conversation without anger or defensiveness or trepidation, I would say this. I get it. I get that it seems impossible, even heretical, that the Bible could be interpreted some other way than the way you've always known, which is to say, the way that has kept you safe, given you comfort and a sense of certainty in this chaotic world. I get that it is hard to believe that God would bless something that society never really has accepted until recently. I get that this topic is hard. I've been there. And yet, I evolved. You may be wondering how. I'm happy to tell you first, um, or I'm happy to tell you, but first I want to give you a few disclaimers. One, I want to set you up for disappointment. You may leave here today feeling as though I did not say what you needed to hear, that I did not answer the questions you've been asking. You may wonder why you still feel unsure about this. But the truth is, this conversation is complex, and it takes more than just one sermon to deconstruct and reconstruct a whole entire theological framework. So the best I can do is hope and pray that this time, the space we've created today, contributes in even the smallest way on your own journey of seeking. The second disclaimer is kind of a personal one, and it's even though I'm not including a whole slew of biblical references throughout this sermon, this does not mean I have not valued scripture on my journey. It doesn't mean I haven't wrestled with theology, and it certainly doesn't mean I've taken the easy way out. This is a common accusation I've experienced, this idea that choosing to wholly affirm our LGBTQ sisters and brothers is somehow giving in to secular culture. And I couldn't disagree more with this logic. In the world of evangelical and conservative Christians, it is much easier to toe the party line, believe me. On a personal level, by being openly affirming, I have essentially burned every bridge, every connection I could have made to further my career in ministry, first in college, then arguably in seminary. It would have been easier for me to ignore this group of ostracized people. I, after all, am not one of them. It would have been most convenient for me to stay quiet about my beliefs in order to keep certain relationships and beneficial opportunities available to me. It certainly would have been safer to stay within the confines of my tribe and to be hand-fed my theology without thinking for myself. So, you can probably tell, but I really hate it when people say I've taken the easy way out. I certainly have not, I can assure you. Finally... This sermon is not an argument to try and sway you. If it were, I would simply go through the Bible, bullet point by bullet point, explaining what each reference and lack of reference pertaining to homosexuality and sexual identity actually means. I could do it, but I'm not going to. If you want theological resources, exegetical resources, I've included those on the back of your worship guide. Read away. But I'm not going to spend time on that today. I was a speech major in undergrad, and one thing I learned in debate is that any argument can be rationalized well, even if you don't agree with it, and we were often assigned positions that we would not have chosen for ourselves. So I'm not here to argue or debate this. It's been done, and it's been done well. What I am here to do is make what's normally an argument human. I'm here to make what's often a debate personal, because at the end of the day, Experience is what changes people most. And no matter how often a person may preach a specific doctrine, in the end, people use experience to guide what they are able to live with, even if we aren't always self-aware enough to realize that is what we are doing. We are all shaped by our experiences, and we make our everyday decisions based on what we know, what we are familiar with, and what makes sense to us as a result of experience. Kyle told me recently about an experience, Eric Wickman, a professor who uh, lives in Belton now, but he's attended our church for many years. He's often had this um, experience in his college classroom teaching religion. When asked how many students agree that it's okay for a woman to be a preacher, only a slim few ever actually raised their hand and agreed. Then next, when asked immediately after how many people have actually heard a woman preacher, the same few are the only ones to raise their hand. These students experienced something that the other students hadn't, and that experience changed their perception of right and wrong. The familiarity impacted them on a theological level, and it informed their interpretation moving forward. When my friend Kendall, who you heard in the poem earlier, preached her coming out sermon in support of LGBTQ, she spoke of the times that changed her theological stance as conversion experiences. And so I would like to do something similar and tell you about my own conversion. I was born and raised in the Bible Belt, so the paradigm mentioned earlier was very much my way of thinking and seeing the world. Still, at the same time, my parents were from the north. Most of my extended family was um, in Portland and and outside of the Bible Belt, basically. And most importantly, I grew up with family members who were gay. So it wasn't a foreign concept to me. Um, Two of my aunts are gay and in healthy, happy, committed marriages, and I grew up around them. So being gay was never something that made me uncomfortable or felt strange to me. But as I grew up, I began to believe, based on what I'd learned in my faith context, that even though I loved my family, scripture gave me no choice but to see all same-sex relationships as sinful. Besides the fact that my aunts were gay, they were also just some of the best people I knew. Um, they still are. They, um, ha- they've, they, they're concerned for humanity. They do good things in the world. they raise their children the same way. And so even though I read the Bible, the only way I knew how on some level, having the amazing extended family who weren't Christians um, that I had, this was my first clue that there couldn't be just one way to interpret scripture. So I took this revelation in my back pocket, and it subconsciously shaped everything I took in as a young person. I can see now how this was my first conversion experience. Even so, I still went along with what I'd been taught. I still didn't know how to believe outside of the ideals that i would inherited. <clears throat> my second conversion experience took, a pla- took place about a decade ago, when my cousin, who's also in Portland, started a blog in which she wrote about controversial issues. One thing I took notice of was how often she would write about her frustration with Christians. And I'll never forget one specific thought she shared after watching a documentary about fundamentalist Christians and what they believe specifically in regards to LGBTQ people and uh, gay marriage. Referring to the the wonderful concept, being sarcastic for the listeners online, um, of love the sinner, hate the sin. She essentially asked, how can you say you love me, but also say I'm a sinner and going to hell all in one breath? And here's the part that really planted a seed inside me that would stick with me. She wondered, how can this be love? If you don't affirm me, you can't really love me. If you don't affirm all of me, you oppress me. You deny me. Even, those, even though these words pierce me, even though they would eventually change me, at the time that she wrote this blog, I truly didn't understand her perspective. Now, this was just as I was starting seminary. So it was before I had acquired the tools needed to learn how to think for myself theologically, to not just accept the ideals that I'd inherited as hard and fast, uncompromisable truth. So I remember feeling really conflicted about all of this. I remember wondering why it was so hard to understand that a Christian could truly love someone while simultaneously believing his or her actions are not of God. I remember justifying it, thinking, we don't have a choice. We're called to be holy, and this means following scripture as it is clearly and literally interpreted. So even though I can look back now and call this moment significant enough to be a conversion, at the time I still went along with what I'd been taught. I still didn't know how to do otherwise. My third conversion experience has to do with calling. Four years had passed since my cousin wrote that blog post, and I was ending my time in seminary. The calling that had formed in my life was a path I would have never predicted. I never thought I would work in a church, thus the degree in social work, much less be a pastor, much less be a preacher. The events of how all of this came to be are so complex and so random and so just totally from God. That's another story for another day. But I went to a seminary known for supporting women in ministry. And in this way, this is how my former experience in college and in the college ministry, I had burned some bridges there, because this seminary was viewed as liberal for being accepting of women in ministry by many of my former colleagues. There were even some attending the seminary who held to these traditional views that God doesn't call women to be preachers, not to mention we're in Texas, you could literally close your eyes and point and someone would think it's unbiblical. But God had called me, and I knew it in my mind and in my heart and in my spirit that there was nothing wrong with this calling, that this was in fact a holy thing, so much so that this call became not just close to me, but a part of my very identity. So for a whole group of people to constantly be telling me that it's wrong, that it wasn't of God, but then to say, but you can work with children, but you can work with other women, but you can do this, but you can't do that, I was like, no i don't want to be half a person in your presence or in your church no thank you and before i knew it i found myself often thinking and even voicing the same words my cousin had written years ago in her blog saying if you don't affirm me you deny me if you don't affirm me you don't you can't fully love me if you don't affirm women totally you oppress them now, I realize this is still a concept that's hard to swallow for people who may have never experienced this feeling of being cast out in a way, but I cannot, nor do I want the love of anyone who won't affirm fully my personhood, my imago day, just as I am, as God made me. And I can no longer in good conscience do the same to others. This was my third conversion experience and it changed me deeply and yet still. I went along with what I'd been taught. I still couldn't reconcile how to completely abandon the paradigm that had given me certainty for so long. My fourth conversion experience took place in the summer of 2014. Oregon had just made gay marriage legal, and even though I celebrated this from a legal standpoint, theologically I still struggled to reconcile it. And the thing is, is I had done the work over the years. I'd thought about it, reasoned over it, studied scripture, read convincing theological arguments. Why was this so hard? I felt incredibly eager to figure it out, to settle the matter once and for all. I felt like I'd been walking on a tightrope or straddling the fence for too long, and something had to give. Then, in August, two days before I would be making a trip to Portland to visit a monastery with my friend Kendall, my aunt Tina called me. She would be having a flash wedding that very week with her partner of 20 years, London, and they wanted me to officiate. Now, Tina is like a mother to me, a sister to me, a best friend to me. I love her fiercely. And I remember in my mind trying to like really quickly put all my theological ducks in a row, but only for a split second because really in that moment I knew. I just knew I would say yes to her. Absolutely no question. And so I did. That yes was a conversion moment, the game changer, that told me all I needed to know about where I stood. And I'm so happy that I can stand here or sit here today as a pastor and a preacher, but also as an advocate and ally. So I guess you could say, not unlike those students in Eric's classroom, I've experienced some things. And those experiences have changed my perception of right and wrong over time. They've impacted me on a theological level. They've informed my biblical interpretation. Experience is the heartbeat that brings things like doctrine to life. Experience is what calls people to action and gets people moving for the kingdom of God. And so in this way, you may be disappointed with what I've had to say in this sermon, because I can tell you words. I can give you interpretation, I can direct you to endless theological perspectives, but I can't experience for you. I can't trust the spirit moving in you for you. I can only hope that what I'm saying, the words I believe God has placed in my heart, will become real to you in some way at some point in time. I remember in seminary feeling like the rug was pulled out from under me over and over again. And it felt like everything I was used to appealing to in terms of faith was up for reinterpretation. Often I felt like I was floating in the middle of an ocean with no anchor. And it took constant work to engage my faith because of it. I would wonder, will it be over soon? This constant wrestling? I had spent a lifetime on the dock of black and white answers, and now in the middle of this vast ocean, I felt uncertain almost all the time. I was probably a few years into starting this church before I became okay with that, (laughs) when I had the revelation, oh, this is it. It's always going to be like this. This is what you get when you choose freedom over certainty. You have to constantly stay on top of things. You have to constantly reevaluate, put in the work. Sometimes you come back to the same questions over and over again. My friends, it's called the life of faith. It's faith. You can't see it. You can't touch it. It's not easy. It's both harsh and beautiful when you engage it yourself. You can't have one without the other. You don't get to choose. You may wonder why would anyone choose this kind of faith. It would certainly be easiest to take what your faith leaders tell you as truth and not ever do any of the searching on your own. For me, I was all too aware that my former faith paradigm was driven by fear and shame and guilt. And it didn't feel right at all that this would be my perception of God. And while I didn't really know where I was going, while I still don't always know, I just know I can't go back and I know I'm not the only one. Fear drives many of us and fear is one of the most dangerous things that keeps us from progressing towards the kingdom of God. The overwhelming reason I find that we are so closed off to becoming radically inclusive of LGBTQ people and relationships is fear. Fear of what might happen when you deconstruct your entire faith foundation. Fear of the unknown, of not having known someone who is gay or transgender and watched as they've lived life beautifully. Fear of the ramifications that may come if you turn out to be wrong in your interpretation. And most importantly, fear of losing your people, your tribe, of being cast out for being bold enough on behalf of the other. I get the fear. It's deep and it's wide and it will freeze you if you let it. And I can't speak for you, but for me, a textbook Enneagram 6, I have spent way too much of my life as a slave to fear, and I refuse to do it any longer. And if any part of me believes that any of my faith beliefs are a product of fear in any way, I have to question them and potentially throw them out. At all costs, I will reject fear because as God has so clearly told us time and time again, and in today, in our lectionary readings, which I didn't even choose, the call is love. And there is no fear in love. The perfect love. The love of God drives out fear. Now, could I be wrong about all this? Absolutely. This is the life of faith. It's as hard as it is because it's one big hell of a risk. But if it's all a risk, then personally, I'd rather risk on the side of love. Because in the end, I don't want to have been wrong about how well I loved people. And this may be a risk that proves me wrong, but the God I know, the God I experience, I believe this God wouldn't be angry with me for choosing to extend love and acceptance to all of God's creation. And here's where the church comes in Because no matter where each of us fall on the spectrum of belief, we need to agree that the church has not handled this well. And I believe we owe the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer community one big apology. And hope to God they extend the grace to us that we've so rarely given them. Even if it were true that to be gay or transgender were a sin, the LGBTQ community are ostracized and treated differently than everyone else. They're marginalized and, tr- and driven out of churches. Even if they are not driven out, they are not allowed to be their whole selves, which often means they're not allowed to serve as leaders in the church. Friends, we are losing lives over this, over our treatment of God's beloved children, and it's not okay. The church has messed up, and the church needs to own up and apologize. It is beyond frustrating to watch systemic racism go unnoticed and unaddressed by the white church. It is so disappointing to observe patriarchy not only protected, but preserved and lifted up at every turn, knowing that these broken systems produce so much sin, so much violence and abuse, countless evils, and yet a Christian will refuse to even entertain the thought that it could be holy for a creature of God in the eyes of God, for a transgender person to live fully into the person God has created them to be, or that it might be holy for a committed, monogamous, healthy relationship to exist between people of the same gender. This attitude that we have is so harmful and so wrong. On any given Sunday in any given church, there is so much talk of repentance. The church has one big log in its eye. Because here is a huge, deep, gaping hole where, the, where repentance is really needed. The only way for it to begin, really, is just with each one of us. And so to all LGBTQ people, and especially to those LGBTQ Christians who have, denied, who have been denied Christ time and time again by his very church, I say to you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the years I spent denying your humanity. I'm sorry for the time I've wasted not being an advocate on your behalf. I'm sorry for being distracted by your personhood instead of fighting for things that are actually evil, like sexual assault, abuse, and harassment. I'm sorry for choosing harmful theology over love. I'm sorry for choosing fear over love. From here on out, with the help of my Lord Jesus Christ, I promise to risk for you, to speak for you when you have no voice, to affirm your wholeness in Christ to all, and to protect your right to every God-given gift under the sun. I want to offer all of us the chance to apologize as well with me this morning through litany. No matter where you are on your theological journey, there is always room for repentance, and this prayer is a safe prayer for all to pray, no matter where you stand theologically. You can find the litany on the back of your guide. Please respond to me in the bold. God. We, the church, your body on earth, turn to you in humility and contrition, confessing our failure at loving our LGBTQ brothers and sisters well. We've insulated insulated ourselves. We've turned turned a blind eye eye to injustice. We've perpetuated misunderstanding. We've capitulated to fear. We've withheld help and concern. We've cheapened the grace of Jesus. We've forgotten that of faith, hope, Hope, and love. Love Love is is the greatest. greatest. We know that where we are inadequate, you are more than enough. We know that there is always redemption when Jesus is around. We know that Jesus is always where the pain is. Our hearts hearts mourn for for the pain pain we have have caused. We are sorry.
1: Help us us to be
0: better at following the way way of love. Amen.